Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hello and welcome to Lost in Science for another week. It is 2023 and we are back. Uh, my name is Claire and with me this week, getting lost in the house of science is Stu. Hello. Hello, Claire. And it's nice to see and hear you again. <laughs> it's been a while since we've been on the show together. It's nice to be hanging out in the house of science with you. Yeah, it's great. But, uh, you know... We're already a month into the year, more than a month, over a twelfth of the way through the year. So we don't get too lost. What I thought I would do this week is actually uh, follow the trail of breadcrumbs back to the beginning of the year and look at some of the science that's already happened in January. Because, you know, there's so much science happening all the time. We just sort of kind of... Uh, we, we, we try and cover as much of it as we can and we grab what sure. we yeah. can as we go past. But I always look behind and go, we forgot about this story. This is a great story. So yep. I'm going to actually have a look back over January 2023 and see some of the some of the big, what I, what I think are some of the big stories that have already zipped past us in, mm. in the month of January. Well, um, I can't wait to hear what has been happening in the world of science in January because it was a bit of a blur for me. I'm going to be uh, talking about something that's happened um, recently. You've probably seen in the news that the US has shot down uh, what they think is a surveillance balloon um, that has been you know, hanging out across American U.S. airspace. Um, And they think it's a Chinese surveillance balloon, but the Chinese say it is a weather balloon that has flown off course. Um, Have you heard about this story? I have, I have. But look, hey, just, you know, just while we're on the the semantics here, surely a weather (laughs) balloon is surveying the weather. Sure. And therefore, it is, it is a surveillance balloon, regardless of <laughs> of what it was doing. I mean, you know, let's let's True. not, you know, maybe that's splitting hairs, but yeah, you know, yeah, it's, yeah, it's doing yeah. something it's, up um, there. It's it's yeah. collecting weather, data of some description. <laughs> weather balloons are just spying on the weather, aren't they? They're just spying on the upper atmosphere. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely right. <laughs> um, I. I've been pretty interested in this story just because I think it's fascinating and it reminded me that balloons get released into the atmosphere all the time. So I'm taking a look at the science of these balloons and just getting a bit of a picture about how often they're released for weather and surveillance purposes. So, um, yeah, stay tuned for that and your update on what has been happening in January and let's get on with the show. I mentioned in our last show of last year just how much science we miss covering on the show every year, and it's partly because there are over 
two million research papers published every year. So it's beyond our scope of our half hour <laughs> weekly show to get all of that science in there. Yeah, sure. I mean, that's why we are literally lost in science. Drowning in science. But I, I'm going to make more of an effort this year to be a bit more regular in covering some stuff we can't fully cover as often as I can. Or, you know, when my list of science news gets too long, I'll try and, you know, cross some things off the list so we can get in there. Um, of course, if anyone wants us to go into something they think we've missed, they can always let us know. Lostinsight at gmail.com is the easiest way to let us know if you want us to cover something specific. But for now, I was talking with Chris last week about a so-called artificial intelligence and AI, which is a machine learning tool that gives responses in natural language and might have an impact, I think, in education at the very least, if not a much more far-reaching impact because it's quite a smart tool. So if you missed that story, have a look uh, back at our archives and catch up with that one. But mm. Another story involving artificial intelligence caught my eye, which is where AI modelling is used in other fields of science research. And this one in particular is they're using AI in climate modelling. So, the, you know, the potential for artificial mm. intelligence in data analysis is pretty huge. It can handle much, much bigger numbers than we can, obviously squeezing it in different ways that, that is beyond the average, uh, you know, calculator, pocket calculator. So we've had a strange summer, I think, and it would certainly be enough to get some people complaining that there's no truth in global warming due to whatever specific local temperatures they've experienced over this summer. And it has been, you know, certainly in Melbourne, it's been pretty chilly. It's been some unusual weather patterns all over the place. Yeah. But an AI model from researchers at Stanford University and Colorado State University in the US found that crunching a whole bunch of numbers that the 1.5 degree Celsius level of warming above pre-industrial levels that has been talked about a lot in the last, you know, 15 years or so, uh, is very likely to be crossed before 2033. So in the next 10 years, we're going to cross wow. that 1.5 Celsius level. Also, this same modelling predicted that two degrees of warming, there's a 50-50 chance of that happening before 2050. So we're kind of uh, looking looking mm. at this you know, uh, warning markers that have been laid out. This is using a huge amount of available data and it was based on, this is based on a, a model where emissions reductions are happening really quickly. So kind of not right. what's happening. Not at the what moment. is happening. So mm -hmm. if, if, we, if we do reduce emissions really quickly, that 1.5 degree uh, Celsius level is in the next 10 years and the two degrees is before 2050. If we reduce emissions really quickly, that's still going to happen according to this modelling. This is one model, and I, I don't want to hang everything on this one model, but it's quite disturbing news if you have been following along with the climate change, um, you know, science that's been going on with it. But obviously science isn't confined to a single field of research, and there's other areas which might have some more encouraging news one that I did pick up in January is in the area of carbon capture. And I know a lot of uh, big polluters have kind of hung their hopes on carbon capture as a, you know, a way of that they can just carry on as normal. Um, yeah, unfortunately, yeah, they can continue to 
produce carbon dioxide and claim that they're carbon capturing. Well, that's right, and they, and they can continue to burn fossil fuels and and. Um, you know, it's fine, we'll, we'll work out a way to do it. But mm. the technology hasn't really been there to, to fall back on that they've been relying on this happening. But if emissions are to be reduced, one way of stopping carbon getting into the atmosphere by trapping it as it gets released from, from the numerous um, fossil fuel burning plants producing energy in various ways. But a team at Pacific Northwest National Laboratories in the US have come up with a new way of doing that. And it's it's so far been proven more efficient than any other system that's been proposed before. So it's designed to be built into old school coal and gas burning power plants. Uh, it uses a special solvent, which they have designed. It's their own kind of... Um, technology that they've developed and it can capture carbon at a cost of 39 US dollars per metric ton which makes it the cheapest viable um, carbon capture system the mechanism itself it relies on an actual you know some some sort of specialized machinery Uh, it can be uh, retrofitted onto existing power plants it's about the size of a sort of walk-in wardrobe kind of thing and the head researcher says it's more like recycling carbon rather than using it once. So, you know, we dig up fossil fuels, we burn them, the carbon's out there. But what he's saying is we'll capture the carbon and we'll recycle it into something else. The thing that the thing that I sort of got stuck on here was that they're, they're capturing the carbon and then converting it into a usable product, which is methanol. So methanol is widely used in industry for a whole bunch of different applications. But one of those is burning it as fuel for, for, which for you know, produces carbon dioxide which again produces carbon dioxide so it's kind of you know it, it's it we're sort of maybe treading water with or treading carbon with mm. this kind of solution um, unless we reduce the total amount we're not mm-hmm. kind of getting it and, and we kind of do have to move away from the idea of burning stuff as fuel we have to move into other ways of you know getting our Energy requirements. So another study that came out in January, published in the journal Joule, which is all about energy, uh, says... Joule, Joule with a J, an O, a U, an L and an E. Yeah, not Joule as in, you know, your jewels on your on your rings and fingers. Um, <laughs> yeah. Joule as in the French physicist. This, this article says there is enough rare earth metals on earth for us to go completely renewable at the current level of energy expenditure. And again, we have to look at that that little caveat at the end. It's at the current levels of energy expenditure. We have enough rare earth metals to make all this renewable energy that we need. But we're expanding the amount of energy we use every year. So that's that's great to know that we've got enough to keep us going at, with renewables, mm-hmm. with the resources we've got. But realistically, we're going to be using more energy in the future it just Mm. seems to be a thing as humans get more you know as our economics develop then people buy more stuff that needs more energy and so the the idea that oh we've got we've got enough to go around yeah maybe for Mm. now but if the energy requirements increase uh we're going to need more of that stuff but uh the paper also points out that it does matter which methods of renewable energy production are used because from a materials efficiency perspective some systems give more bang for our buck than others. So how we use those rare earth metals is going to make a big difference to how 
how thin we can spread them across the energy uh, production industry, I guess. That's good if we can move to those low emission electricity generation systems quickly enough. But, you know, we've, we've got the technology, we've got the resources, we can potentially do that and get off the uh, get off the fossil fuel treadmill teat. which is <laughs> the, te- I was going to say teat but I feel like it's more you know with if, if carbon recycling it's more like a treadmill we're just running over yeah. the same old ground so that that's uh, that's you know sort of good news from the from the materials the resources side of things last year I wanted to touch on from January and this is all happening in January this is so much science it's about energy transmission so a scientist at Stony Brook University called Kazuki Ikeda has claimed to be the first person to teleport energy using a quantum computer. <gasps> Get out. We're, we're talking like the fly, like this is steps away from the fly, right? Multiple steps away from the fly. <laughs> um, so teleportation of information with, with quantum computing has been done before. Being able to move information from one place to another, but not through space, which is kind of mind-blowing in itself. But uh, teleportation of energy is based on similar principles, and it was predicted before quantum computing was a realistic possibility. So all the way back in the 20th century, people were talking about being able to do this. So demonstration of the ability to teleport energy was over a distance of a single microchip. So you're talking tiny, tiny distance of a tiny, tiny amount of energy. We're not going to be able to, you know, transmit your, your daily electricity consumption from, from, you know, Melbourne to Bega or anything like that at this point. But the scientist, uh, Akita, says it can be done over any distance. He's saying in, in quantum scales of things, it doesn't matter about the distance, it's the entanglement of the energy that is the important part of it. So this is kind of a massive... Uh, breakthrough, I guess, of a very, very tiny thing. Um, And obviously, this is going to have more impact in quantum computing than in anything else. It's not going to be, it's not going to change the energy distribution networks uh, anytime soon. Um, The energy involved is in very small amounts. But, you know, if we do think of, uh, you think of Einstein's famous equation that E equals mc squared. The energy is equal to the mass times the speed of light squared. Energy and mass are convertible. So mm-hmm. if we can if we can convert if we can trans teleport energy, we can potentially teleport stuff as well. Because <laughs> if you can convert one thing to the other, you convert something to energy, and you tra- teleport it, and you can convert it back into mass at the other end. Potentially, at some point, way way off in the future, at least February sometime. We're not talking before then. Um, so that, that's, that's our science from, from January. Who knows what, what the rest of February will bring. But it is the shortest month of the year. So maybe there'll be less. Maybe there'll be more. Who can say? We'll have to wait and see what gets published in the next few weeks. What are you onto? Anything of interest to the uh, scientific community? Together, you and I are going to make the greatest single contribution to science since the creation of fire. It's a big scientific experiment. What do I know?
Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. So, Stu, you may have heard the news about the Chinese balloon that was shot down, making its way through US airspace. It's caused a bit of a diplomatic incident, actually. Chinese authorities say it's a weather balloon that had gone off course. And, you know, this weather balloon, although you say, well, it's just surveilling the weather, um, they're saying... Yeah, it's just a weather balloon, it's just for meteorological purposes. Whereas the US is claiming it's being used for a different type of surveillance. More of a spying sort of surveillance. It makes me think immediately, why does China need to know what the weather's like in US airspace? <laughs> I mean, they could just ask them for one thing. <laughs> well, they're saying that it's gone off course. It's a weather balloon that's gone off course, you know. It's not necessarily um, supposed to be there. I think they're admitting that it's not supposed to be there, but what it actually is, everyone's being a bit cagey. I mean, I find this story fascinating for all those questions that, that we've just been asking. Just, I just wanted to, you know, just weather balloons, I, you know, I've heard about weather balloons for forever since I was a little kid because, yeah. oh, you know, denials of ufos oh it's a weather balloon and all yep. that sort of stuff that's been going on forever and ever and ever Do, I'm, I'm kind of surprised that we're still using weather balloons don't we know how the weather works enough to go we don't we don't <laughs> need know. to use balloons we got we got drones we've got satellites we've got all this stuff do we need I balloons know. still i have had exactly the same process since i read about this story which is why i want to take you down the rabbit hole that i've been going down around weather balloons um, and it's just, just even though technology has gotten better, weather balloons consistently are the cheapest thing. You know, cheap, efficient, and effective. Um, that's what that's the weather balloon story. But also, also uh, silent and radar invisible would be two things I'd throw in there as well. <laughs> whether it's meteorological, whether it's spy, you know, spy versus spy stuff. This whole idea of sending balloons up into the atmosphere on a regular basis is something that just piques my imagination. And I'm, and like you, I'm like, what are we doing still sending them up? Now, weather balloons just in Australia. Oh, actually, first of all, have a guess of how many places worldwide send up weather balloons. Uh, everyone. <laughs> I don't know. No. <laughs> is, it, is it every nation? Would every nation send up weather balloons? I don't know. Well, there's a thousand locations a, a oh, day wow. will send up weather balloons. Yeah. And Australia alone, in Australia, the Bureau of Meteorology, let's just call it the bomb, um, they release more than 50 every day or about 20,000 a year. 50 wow. balloons a day from 38 different locations. That's, that's a lot that's of balloons. A lot. That's 000. a lot of balloons. It's very important because we need these balloons to predict the weather. So without these balloons, we don't have a good understanding of the conditions of the upper atmosphere. So even though, you know, we might have, we might know what it's like at sea level, 6,000 metres up, you can detect things like a storm brewing that's, that's going to take hold of part of the country in seven days time so regular balloons need to be dispatched and measure the conditions so we can you know keep track of these things that's why we need them but i definitely am fascinated more about these that the humble balloon now the balloon is it's usually made from latex which is naturally a naturally produced rubber or they can be made out of neoprene which is a 
artificially produced rubber as well. Now you can fill them with one of two things, helium or hydrogen. Depends on your preference at your launch station. So the pros for hydrogen are that it's cheaper, it's got better lifting capacity, can be easily extracted from water. Um, however, there's one major con of hydrogen, which you might be able to guess. Well, it explodes. It does explode. Yeah. It does. It explodes in the presence of oxygen. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, I mean, the Hindenburg disaster was an explosion of a hydrogen balloon. Although right? I do I do believe that was something to do with the uh, with the actual coating of the Hindenburg. It wasn't just the hydrogen, but the hydrogen made it a lot worse because helium, <laughs> do, helium doesn't burn like that. But, you know, no. there, there, there was multiple things that went wrong there. With this knowledge, do you think Australia fills its weather balloons with hydrogen or helium? I'd say we play fast and loose and use hydrogen. <laughs> we, we do. We do play fast and loose. And we do use hydrogen. So I was reading up from the Bureau and um, this is why they've got in a lot of their literature, they say, if you ever come across a weather balloon partially deflated on the ground called triple zero, it's full of hydrogen, it could explode in your face. <laughs> no smoking <laughs> while investigating the <laughs> hydrogen balloons. Exactly, exactly. Wow. Oh, my gosh, yeah. But the alleged surveillance balloon that was um, missiled down across the ocean by the US, that was not full of hydrogen. That was full of helium. Oh, it would have been much more spectacular if it was... It would have hydrogen. been much more spectacular, <laughs> Although I'm it? surprised, did they actually use a... Did they shoot it down with a missile? Yeah, they shot it down with a missile. <laughs> so over the top. <laughs> it, it is It is a bit, you know, did they send did they send Tom Cruise up in his jet fighter <laughs> to shoot it down or something? I mean, God. They, they shot it down with um, jets. I mean, so it was Maverick. It, 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 it may as well have been Maverick. <laughs> yeah. So that's the balloon bit. But the balloons also carry a payload. Uh, now in weather balloons, there's a small payload. It's called a radio sonde. It's shoebox sized and it's got three basic instruments that you need to measure temperature, humidity and pressure. That's your basic weather balloon going up, you know, all those times every every single day. It also has a low-powered radio transmitter to relay the data from all the instruments, and it does this continuously from the moment it's released into the air until the moment that it pops. In surveillance balloons, if you're spying, you might want a bit more spyware. <laughs> There's a bit more going on. So yeah. you might have solar panels for power so you can be a bit more directional with your balloon. You don't just let it go and, you know, the balloon just goes where it wants. Um, and you also need panels to be able to power anything else that you might have up there. So it's got things like cameras, radars, communication equipment and sensors. And speaking of payloads, just as an aside, if you have the burning question of whether a human's actually been able to be a payload on a, on a weather balloon, there was a trucker. His name was Larry Walters and he tied 42 weather balloons to himself and he went for a ride. He got, he got up 4,800 metres in California before he realised that he was rising too quickly. He had an air, an air pistol, so he shot a couple of the balloons and he came down and made a safe landing. 
<laughs> I remember someone actually made a little short film about that. Oh, it really? Was, it was yeah, it was an Australian short film, and it was um, yeah, a guy a guy in a little lawn chair with <laughs> all these balloons, and he, but he um in in the film for a bit of extra drama, he dropped his he dropped his air gun, so oh no, okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 yeah. a it's a famous famous story, yeah. Now, let's talk about how they get into the atmosphere. They start on the ground, but they end up really high. So, for surveillance balloons, um apparently locals in Montana, they say they could see the balloons from the ground. And the balloon was up at around 37 kilometers high. So, they could see it quite far away. Maybe it was coming to I don't know. It seems it seems crazy that you could see the balloon up that high. Thirty seven kilometers, which is where these balloons sort of end up. It's much higher than what fighter jets fly, that's around twenty four kilometers, and commercial planes fly at around twelve kilometers. When it was up this high, the surveillance balloon, it was actually the size of about three buses. So it's quite a big, big balloon. So is that does doesn't, it, does it get, doesn't start that big? No, I was going to say it gets bigger because the pressure's lower yeah, outside at that exactly. altitude. Right. Exactly. Yep. Yep. So as um, with weather balloons, you might see them being launched, and they're you know maybe the size of one of those one of those exercise balls that you get, yeah. and then they rise and rise, and as the the air as there's less and less air, the air pressure gets lower and lower you know, pushing in on the balloon, the air inside the balloon stretches out further and further, which, yeah, increases the size of the balloon until what happens with all balloons, once they get stretched a bit too far, they explode and some part of them breaks. Um, For weather balloons and surveillance balloons, I hope as well, at this point, a tiny little parachute comes out and the payload or the radio sonde um, travels safely back down to earth with the tiny little parachute so it doesn't become like any like some sort of (laughs) a a deadly projectile yeah deadly projectile coming straight back to earth yeah there you go Stu. i hope i hope some of your balloon questions have been answered they're not just good for spying on people they're fundamental to knowing about forecasting, they're cheap, you know, they're also can be quite explosive, so watch out if you ever see one out and about. Um, and if this doesn't float your boat, well, I don't know what will. That's all we have time for on another episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for joining us. Lost in Science is recorded on the lands of the Kulin Nation, at the studios of 3CR, and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the kind support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. 
If you would like to get in touch with us, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at lostinsight@gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook where we are Lost in Science on 3CR or try us on Twitter where we are Lost in Science 1 or just tune in again next week wherever you listen to us when Stu, Claire and Chris get Lost in Science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.